the scripture reader, and I believe we have Psalm 63 on the slide. Join me, and let's read together. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. He shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. The word of the Lord. The president, as you know, has uh, asked for a moment of silence at 6 o'clock. And so we will stop the the sermon uh, at that time and observe a moment of prayer for all the victims in Orlando. The biographies of great leaders usually are filled with very impressive credentials. Uh, The schools they've been to, the Eatons and the Oxfords and the Yales and the Harvards, the the generals that they served under, the the Rhodes Scholarships that they uh, were given. And all of these things prepare them for for their leadership role. God's way of preparing David for his future, for his destiny, for his leadership role, uh, is a little bit different. God had David spend many years in the wilderness. And as you've seen, if you've been with us in this little study, David had a great start. He's anointed He defeats Goliath. He comes into Saul's cabinet. He's very popular, even with the son of the king. And he's on a a rocket trajectory towards success and fame and power. And, And Saul becomes jealous. Saul develops a mental illness, perhaps schizoid paranoia or something like that. And he begins to drive David away. David flees into the wilderness. And uh, just to kind of put this in geographic context, just to remember where we are, there's Israel in the middle of the Middle East. When we talk about the wilderness in the Bible, usually we're referring to an area that's south of uh, Bethlehem and goes all the way down into Egypt. And there's different, different, there's different names for different wildernesses in, uh, in, in Israel. But this whole story takes place in the bottom half of Israel. Now, 
the last third of the book of 1 Samuel is sprinkled with little sentences like, David departed from there and escaped to the cave at Adullam. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph. And David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon. And I tried to find out this week, how long was this period? And I saw estimates from four years to 15 years. Uh, At the very least, it seems that David spent most of his 20s in this wilderness. And, And it's very interesting. The author does not romanticize David's life during this period. He's very honest about just how raw and, and painful and, and filled with confusion and ambiguity and even moral failure David's life is. During this period, David deceives a priest into protecting him. The result is Saul kills the priest, the family of the priest, and the entire village of the priest. David stumbles into an enemy kingdom and then feigns madness so that he is not uh, punished. David uh, becomes so uh, disoriented that he, he winds up working for the other side as kind of a counter-espionage agent for about a year. It's a very fascinating study. David's journey through the wilderness is a very messy one. And he writes a number of psalms. I think he writes 12 psalms during this wilderness period. And when you read them, you get a feel of what the wilderness means to David. It means loneliness. It means terror. It means danger. It means thirst and hunger. Uh, I think I have a second slide there. Um, The wilderness in in Judah is different than the way we think of wilderness. That's a picture of it. Uh, All the wilderness areas in Israel are not like that, but that is the wilderness of Judah. Uh, I remember when I studied there for the summer, we spent some time out there, and I I just kept thinking, how did anybody live here? But that's the area that David uh, is writing this psalm from. The wilderness is also a place where David meets God. And I think that's why these, these wilderness psalms have been so important to the people of God over the years is because we all go through our own wilderness And we don't want to minimize the pain and the suffering that can happen in a wilderness period. But David sees the wilderness as an opportunity to find God. David even sees the wilderness as a gift. Now sometimes if you you read the spiritual writers over the century, they use the the metaphor of the wilderness for a number of spiritual problems. A, A great look on on midlife crisis uh, begins like this. And by the way, for whatever it's worth, my sense is that that's happening 10 to 15 years earlier now than it used to. Don't know why. It's just my observation. I could be totally wrong, but that's my sense. The book begins, Why do so many go through so much disruption in their middle years? Why then? What is the meaning of such an experience? This wilderness, this midlife crisis, which I call the middle passage, presents us with an opportunity to re-examine our lives and ask the question, who am I apart from my history and the roles that I've played? When we discover that we've been living what constitutes a false self, 
that we've been enacting a provisional adulthood driven by unrealistic expectations, then we open the possibility for a second adulthood, our true personhood. The midlife passage is an occasion for redefining and reorienting the personality, a rite of passage between the extended adolescence of first adulthood and our inevitable appointment with old age and mortality. Those who travel the passage consciously render their lives more meaningful. Those who do not remain prisoners of childhood, however successful they may appear in outer life. And he develops in the book this idea that the wilderness of midlife can actually be a gift to help us truly discern who we are in God. Depression is often referred to as a wilderness in spiritual writing. One writer says, A human being in the wilderness is alone, isolated, his life in great danger. Whenever the wilderness appears in myth or dream, it refers to a place of stagnation, where there is no life, where everything is arid and nothing can grow. When the wilderness appears in this way, it obviously refers to a psychological condition having the same characteristics, a condition where the flame of life sinks. One finds oneself in the wilderness where one is cut off, alienated from oneself and from the community and from God. Sometimes sickness can be a wilderness, but even that can be a gift. A medical doctor wrote this. A patient saw his cancer as a black hole that was constantly trying to pull him in. It took all his strength to resist the pull. When he imagined himself letting go and being drawn into this hole, in its darkness he found a profound healing. Sometimes the wilderness can just be an apt metaphor for the struggles we face in life. An artist, Christine Volteres, writes this, It is one of my deepest convictions that when we are true to the deepest experiences of fall and winter in our souls, we carve out space for a more profound kind of joy. There are cracks in our dry soil that make way for the buds of springtime. The challenge is that we must sit in the space of unknowing, truly in the dark, as to when the spring will come. In my own journey, I've learned that when these struggles come to visit, that denying them only pushes them underground, choking out the life awaiting me. And so I have cultivated a trust in the soulfulness of honest struggle, knowing that it may not bring me where I want to go, but I will be transformed. So I I believe that these writers are echoing a truth that David is 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 trying to teach us at the beginning of the psalm when he says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What is he doing? He is allowing this raw, brutal experience in which he is stripped of everything he's depended on for life, his family, his reputation, even his physical resources, rather than just despairing and plummeting into the pit, he is saying, look, This makes me realize my thirst for God. This experience could be a gift. It's a pivotal move that we all don't make. But it's the first move that David makes when he is in the wilderness. It's a move to see this experience as a gift that exposes his raw thirst and hunger for God. Now, This psalm is an example of how David moves through the wilderness towards God as best he can. He says, So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power 
and glory. What's he doing on there? So somehow he's sitting next to a rock or in a cave or somewhere. He's cut off from everybody he loves. And he, just, he looks back at the times of corporate worship in the tabernacle. He looks back at times like this. And he says, I remember beholding your power and glory. I remember being in your divine presence. I remember feeling you. I don't feel you now. But I remember. I think that's one of the reasons why corporate worship is so important. It's because there are times when we taste the manifest presence of God. Not, not every week. But there are times when we behold the power and the glory of the Lord. There's many examples in In Scripture, when Moses dedicates the tabernacle, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord covered the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when Solomon dedicates the temple, God's manifest presence fills the room, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. The the Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means weight or heaviness. There's the sense that when God's manifest presence is revealed in worship, there's actually a spiritual weight that comes upon you. It's palpable and you you know it. Let's pause for a moment and pray silently for the victims in Orlando. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it just strikes me even as we offer that prayer, how there's so many layers to the wilderness. There's so many different ways that we can touch it. Uh, called a friend who's, who's gay before the service and just ask him how he was doing. And he, he just is really struggling and, and suffering um, with, with this whole thing and feeling very afraid, uh, very marked, very in danger, uh, very anxious. Just a whole other layer of wilderness experience. It can come in so many different ways. Uh, And this is a psalm about where we go in times like these. You know, the initial reaction, of course, is to try to do something. And uh, I hope there's something that we can do. I don't know if there is. As Christians, what I think we're called to tonight is to look at more what should happen in our soul when we are in places like this what movement we should make in our soul. Um, a friend asked me once, if all you had were the creeds, would you believe? And I thought, wow, that's a really good question because I believe the creeds. But if all I had was this, this, that, that the creeds are true, yep, they're true, I believe everything in them, yep, 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 yep. But if I'd I'd never experienced the presence of God with you in worship, I'd never had any of the encounters I've had with him in prayer, I've never had that experience in the middle of the night where he's comforted me, I'd never walked through cancer with Sandy and Bryden and felt him there in the operating room, Uh, I I don't know if I'd still be a Christian. I, I don't know if just, actually I think I'd be gone by now. I, I think I need that vital experiential encounter 
with the Lord. And I think David did too, and that's what he's looking back to in this, in this psalm. And then he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's steadfast love is that Hebrew word chesed. It's his covenant faithfulness, his mercy, his grace. The way God loves us is faithful, keeps his promises over the years. And, and David's doing a very simple spiritual practice that is so important in times of wilderness. God, I don't feel you now. You seem a million miles away. Fifty people just lost their lives. Where the blank were you? We go back to his faithfulness, the way he's been with us. We remember. It's one of the most basic spiritual practices There are going to be times of wilderness and desert when you don't feel a thing and they can last a long time. And in those times, you remember his faithfulness in the past. And that's what gets you through. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. You know, the Bible talks a lot about bad sleep. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of things that happen in the night when you're supposed to be sleeping in the Bible. (laughs) A lot goes on in the middle of the night. Um, I personally hate it when I don't sleep. And not only do I hate it when I don't sleep, I get very frustrated when I start not to sleep because I know I should be asleep. And the longer I stay awake and not sleeping, the more I tell myself I have to go to sleep. And then by the morning, it's a bad, bad place. Then the Lord took away caffeine and, huh, well. <laughs> the Bible has a very interesting way of thinking about the night. And I know this is pre-Benadryl and, you know, pre-Dimatap or whatever you use to get, pre-milk or whatever it is you use to get through the night. But the Bible talks a lot about meditating in the middle of the night. David says, I meditate on you in the night watches. Now, what did he mean? Well, the Levites uh, would, would have night prayer services. And he probably means in the middle of the night, either I get up, to pray the hours of the night like I used to. Or he could mean, I'm sleeping on a rock here. I'm not getting much sleep at all. And so I'm choosing to meditate on God in the middle of the night. Now, there's a very interesting book by Arianna Huffington called The Sleep Revolution, which if if you struggle with sleep and it's something that you're thinking about, by the way, not sleeping well, obviously, can create a wilderness experience. Right? If you're waking up with a you know half a battery, sleep's very important. But what David says, what he does is he meditates on scripture. He doesn't say, I study God's word. The last thing you want to do in the middle of the night is study. You don't want to open yourself up to new ideas in the middle of the night. You don't want to get that part of your brain spinning in the middle of the night. You don't want to sit there 
and do an endless loop over and over and over again in the middle of the night, you want to take a little portion of God's word and meditate on it. The Hebrew word means to, to, to muse, uh, to coo like a dove, to murmur. And, and the idea was that you take a portion of scripture, an attribute of God, and you would just gently kind of think about it over and over and over again through the night. One common way, that this is the way I normally do it, the Jesus prayer. The Eastern Church Fathers talked about linking meditation to breathing, and I find that really helps. Uh, the Jesus prayer is just, Lord Jesus Christ, inhale, Son of God, have mercy on me, exhale, a sinner. And I find that if I'm anxious, and I, I just kind of pray that prayer, link it with my breath, that, that I often become more peaceful and go back to sleep. Another, another uh, common way is just Yahweh. 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 And if you do that for 10, 15 minutes, it's remarkable the level of, of peace that comes. And it's even been researched and statistically proven. It slows down everything in your body. It gives you more internal peace, and it, you sleep better. Studies also show that 71% of us have a phone by our bed emitting some kind of a blue light, and that that alone, that presence in your room alone, will hinder your sleep, and that looking at anything on a screen within an hour before going to bed will, will hinder your, your sleeping. So David can't sleep, and he meditates on God's word. Well, then David ends with, with one, of the, one of those lines in the Psalms that are just kind of tough to read. Um, those who seek to destroy my life are going to go down to the depths of the earth. In other words, go to hell, Saul. Um, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They'll be a portion for jackals. You know, when you go to the monastery, you, you sing the Psalms, and you sing all of them. And sometimes you're sitting there, and it's a, Oh, Lord, would you smash their heads against the rock and rip out the guts of their little babies? Amen. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, God, this just is not, this is not right. Um, well, we're in a new covenant. Jesus says, forgive your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. It's not cool to hate. This is an ancient warrior, pre-modern uh, guy using the theological tools he has to deal with great suffering. The point is, he has some kind of hope in this that God's going to get him through it. That's the old covenant way of saying, I'm hopeful. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Um, but that's the way they used to do it. And the point, I think, is, I think this is why he ends up here, is that if you were in a wilderness tonight, If you allow your addiction, if you allow the struggle in your marriage, if you allow your physical problem, if you allow your anxiety about our culture, if you allow your depression, if you allow your midlife crisis to strip away all the pretensions of your false self, and awaken in you your longing for God, 
and your realization that only in him will you ever be satisfied. All the idols that you've worshipped all your life, even if you got them, you'd never be satisfied. That's what the desert teaches you. Even if you got them, you wouldn't be satisfied. When the desert strips all those away, you move towards God. You remember the times you've been in his presence. You remember his covenant faithfulness. You meditate on his promises in the middle of the night. A faint hope will start to emerge in your heart that it's going to be okay. Let's pray.